Hey everyone and welcome back to Citywide Blackout. This is a very special series of interviews that we are kicking off today. This is the sort of the prelude to the upcoming Rhode Island Author Expo that's happening December 3rd, 10 to 5 at the Crown Plaza Ballroom in Warwick, Rhode Island. It's a free event, folks, but the books are not free. They will cost you money, and we have over a hundred authors taking part in this event. It's going to be a great time. I'll be there emceeing, doing some interviews, having a blast, and I hope to see you there too. So joining us tonight to kick off this wonderful series of interviews is going to be Evelyn Audette. There is a lot to talk about. We have kids' books, we have sort of young adult books, and we have a, a soon-to-be-released journal of her time on the seas for many years. Evelyn, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Max. I'm glad to be here. All right. So let us pick up with, of course, the big news about the upcoming release of your of your journal, which basically chronicles your life on the ocean. I know that this kind of started with your dream of just living on a boat um, uh, in the uh, Caribbean. What is included in this book? So it starts when I met my husband, and then he, when we got engaged, he asked me if I would live a little untraditionally, and I said, well, what does that mean? He said, like living on a sailboat in the Caribbean. So we um, took sailing lessons, bought a small boat in Narragansett Bay, and we sailed all around uh, Narragansett Bay and the islands, traveled around to different countries that were the latitude where palm trees. <laughs> to see where we wanted to go and call home base. And then we better bought a big boat in the Caribbean. And we lived on it for four winters so far. Wow. Very cool. <laughs> but this isn't like a full-time life on the high seas, right? No. Ah, no. Okay. We both have businesses here in Rhode Island. That's fair. That's fair. And also the whole living on the high seas requires you to actually live on the high seas. <laughs> and I would the Caribbean's a little bit low seas. So. Fair enough. Fair we're, enough. Yeah. <laughs> we're surrounded by islands. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> so what uh the thing I'm really curious about is sort of the the aim of the book. Uh what do you uh, what do you hope to sort of accomplish uh, through this thing? Yes, so the journal was notes for me just because I don't trust my memory that well. And I knew we were doing some really cool things. And every time we talked to our friends or a stranger about what we were doing and our goal, their eyes lit up and everybody would say, that's so cool. So I needed to document what we did because every time you're out on a boat on the water, there's a story to tell, whether it's wildlife or weather or other people. It's, there's always something, and it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. What would you say are some of the more memorable stories from your time on the ocean? Oh, there's so many. Um, the <laughs> the um, stories that I got a kick out of when I was putting the journal together that um, was about the dog is how the dog stories came up. But one of the... Um, Great stories with being on the small boat. It was the Catalina sailboat in Rhode Island. We were coming back from Block Island and a little west, kind of out off the coast of Westerly. And we were, we watched the depth finder as always and had the chart. And all of a sudden it's going from 140 feet to eight feet. So I grab the chart and I look and I'm like, there's nothing out here. There should be no change in depth. So it came up and then gradually it started going 
the depths started getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And we just looked at each other and shook our heads and said, yep, that was a whale. <laughs> oh my God, a whale went so under your boat? Really cool. Yeah, my <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Oh wow. I yeah. oh geez, that would that would that would that would just freak me out a little bit. <laughs> we were excited. We were really hoping that it would breach because it would be it would have been great to see it. Oh, I'll bet. Um, I'll bet. Um now when you were sort of just like putting everything together f- uh, for the book, um was it was it really fun to kind of just go down that like uh that memory <sighs> lane? Absolutely. And all the editing processes, you know, um, process of going over it and over it. It's so much fun to relive. It was it has been a great adventure. Anything you decide to leave out either for space reasons or for story reasons? It's funny because my husband will read, I'll read a passage and he'll say, you can't read, you can't put that in there. And I said, well, it is going to be for adults. (laughs) (laughs) wow (laughs) so this is definitely not a kid's book (laughs) it won't be a kid's book i don't think because um i have 275 pages written fair enough but for the kids we of course have your other books which are hannah's big adventure picture book and Hannah's Big Adventure chapter book. And this is all about Hannah the dog being left alone at home for a week and then in a dog pound. But she but she has many, many adventures, goes from, from, from abandonment to a yacht in the Caribbean. I'm getting a theme here on this one. <laughs> yes. So when I was writing the journal and compiling all of my notes and um, ex- uh, different books of my journaling, the handwritten or typed, I would come across a story and it was a great passage about the dog. And I said, oh, this is so cute. So I put it in a different document. And then I'd find another one. I put it in a different document. And before I knew it, I had pages and pages of the stories of the dog on the boat. So I wrote a chapter book from her perspective. It's not her voice, but it's her perspective of going from abandonment to being uh, living in a pound for four weeks before we got her. And then we took her on a big jet airplane in the cargo. And um, when she got off the plane from being freezing cold here in New England, there were palm trees and 85 degree temperatures. I'm curious <laughs> how Hannah reacted to that. Well, she did not like the flight. I know that. When we changed planes in San Juan, barking. So she didn't like the flight a lot. But she was very happy to see us. And she was very curious about this whole escapade. Hannah's personality was um, full of adventure and she just wanted to go. She was game. Whatever we had, she was like, I'm doing it. I'm in. So she took to that boat like she had been sailing her entire life or maybe nine lives before. <laughs> oh man, that's a great story. Uh, who <laughs> Now I know that of course children's books, you know, you don't have a whole lot of text, but what's the challenge in creating such a short story? Really keeping, well, the picture book was easy because it was just handed pictures. Um, so the chapter book, I think keeping it to the details about her and trying to keep our experiences out of it. 
So it was how, how, what she experienced more so than the things that we did when we went out at night or met with other people and, you know, had to clean the boat and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Um, now, this is, now, this is like your first foray into doing kids' books. What was that experience like for you? It's interesting because I don't have children myself and I'm not surrounded by children. So I took a lot of classes. I um, went, joined some organizations and did a bunch of workshops. And in one of the workshops, they provided a prompt. And then from that prompt, you would write for 45 minutes and then they would criticize and we we would all critique each other's work. So the prompt was superhero. And I struggled a bit about what to write about. And I decided to write about a wish of mine, which is to have an intervention from another species, another planet that come down and tell human beings that we need to be kind to each other and take care of our planet. And that was Oxiana. And it was a great story. So I used that as a educational process for me to learn about how to work with illustrators and publishing. Um, and so Oxiana was actually the first book that I had published. Oh, now let's talk all about that because I love the story. So, so, so Oxiana is basically observing earth from 400,000 light years away. And, you know, she is terrified by like, by like what she sees. And finally she decides to go there with a message for basically the inhabitants to take better care of the planet. And I love that idea. Where did this concept come from, though? It is something that's always rattled around in my head. Um, And, you know, without talking about my uh, beliefs, but I can't imagine that we are the only planet with life on it and how vast the universe is. And I struggle with the fact that we aren't kind to each other as human beings and we're not taking care of this planet. It's a closed system. So we really should be taking care of this system. This is our home and our life. So it's always been something that I thought the only way we're all going to um, kind of get a little flick in our forehead <laughs> is maybe from somebody else who isn't from here and who is observing us from far away. Nice. Um, what about the planning process for the story? Did you have to like plan this whole thing out or just kind of go by the seat of your pants? I really went by the seat of my pants on this story. It just came out of me in that 45 minute lesson. Wow. Very (laughs) good. That's what my husband said. (laughs) I'll I'll bet. Well, like you hear about how, how some writers will take like months, if not years to plan the story. And here you are one lesson. Boom. You got it. Um, let's talk about the character of. Oxiana. She's obviously like the hero of, she's obviously the heroine of the story. Who is she as a person? Well, her father was um, a humanologist, which means that he studied humans his entire life. And he educated, he was a teacher and he educated his people on his planet, his students about humans. So he, they've been observing us for a long time and her she communicates telepathically and she was very concerned about earth and she said we're going to implode so she she was engaging her father and asking his permission to let her come 
And um, he said, you know, just because you can doesn't mean we should. And we shouldn't um, interfere with other civilizations. And they, in the book, I talk about Star Trek's, um, the prime directive, because the name of our boats, both boats, and my journal is prime directive, (laughs) because we nicknamed our goal, our prime directive. (laughs) So... So are you familiar with the I, with the prime directive? I strongly approve. I strongly approve of this name. I like it. <laughs> so um yeah, so she he said, I can't stop you. I know I can't stop you. And if you feel that close that strongly about it, you need to do what you need to do. And um she she embarked on that journey as we embarked on our journey. <laughs> and what kind of recep and uh, and uh, what kind of reception does she get when she comes here and say, "Hey, I'm from you know all these light years away. I come with a message." They came to Earth with seven spaceships, uh, one for each continent, and she spoke telepathically to the leaders of all of the major countries, and they were fearful, and of course. Um, brought out weapons, and she told them that her wep- their weapons were useless. She just could um, not disarm them, not fight back. She brought no weapons, but they they were useless in this cause. And um, you know, of course, as world leaders may do, that they fought back and struggled to find out how they could make her go away. And she said, I'm not going away. And then she started talking telepathically to all the people. And um, they believed, they were fearful, of course, at first. And But they started to understand that this was really important because what she was doing and telling us is that we have to move now to take care of our home and each other. See, I feel like... A presence like that, yeah, it, it it would definitely invoke like you know, oh, they're here to invade us, you know, seven ships over over every continent, you know, <laughs> this can't be good. Um, but hers is the mission of peace. Uh, how does she sort of like punch through that that resistance to get her message across? Um, she was stubborn and persistent. I like that. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Now, is she like a young character, old character? Where she fall? Um, she is a um a young girl. I would say um twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old. So she's a a young a young lady, and um she has powers because she was a superhero. She's going to be our superhero that were not only speaking telepathically, but she was able to calm people and, again, render weapons useless. I can only imagine the world leader's re- uh, response to an alien teenager telling them, <laughs> you've got you to stop everything you're doing and do it differently. <laughs> One of the illustrations is the, um, you know, it would look like it would be Something like, you know, the uh, Congress Hall of the, and, uh, the Capitol Hill, and they're all running for the door. <laughs> so. I can only imagine. Uh, who did the illustrations? So the illustrations were done by Christopher Hilaire. So Chris Hilaire. And um, I found him through Stillwater Publishing. And uh, he did a fantastic job. Hmm. 
Now, the vibe I get off your books is they have a very strong environmental theme to them, of course. You know, traveling yes. across the ocean, Axiana. Um, why is this cause so so important to you? Um, I am a naturalist from being a young child. Um, I remember I spent a lot of time outside. I grew up in Westport, Massachusetts, and um, my parents had acres of land. My grandparents had acres of land, and I was with wildlife and outside most of my childhood. And it is so important. I could understand very, very young how all the systems work together and you can't upset that system because it will fail. And it's just has always been important to me. All right. Now let us talk about the upcoming author expo. Of course, this is going to be happening in December. Over a hundred authors are going to be there. There'll be panels and guest speakers. Is this your first time taking part in this event? No, I did it last year. Oh, cool. I was, I was there last year, yes. Um, that was my first time. Yeah, yeah. What's what's your strategy like when you're at these things? Because obviously the goal is to connect with the readers and, of course, sell some books. Well, I do try to catch the eye of people who are there and um, engage them. I smile a lot. I'm not afraid to talk to people. So I try to draw people in and tell them a little bit about the um, the stories. And I usually start with Hannah's Big Adventure, the picture book, because um, it's a great story that this dog went from abandonment to living on a yacht in the Caribbean. And they are, okay, what? <laughs> I want to be your dog. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, do you do you bring Hannah to, uh, to these events? No, Hannah. We lost Hannah a while ago. Aww. So um, our four years on the boat were many years ago. But we still have the boat. We we couldn't sell her for a while, and then we didn't want to sell her. And then she got hurt in Irma. So we are embarking on repairing the boat, and um, hopefully this winter we get to spend this winter on it. But when we replace, when we got another dog, we didn't, could never replace Hannah. But when we got another dog, um, my husband challenged me and said he wanted her, he wanted the dog to look just like Hannah, and he should have known better than to challenge me because <laughs> we have Hannah's twin now. <laughs> oh, and Hannah's twin, she's not really uh, fond of these kinds of events. She's not. She does not have Hannah's personality. So she would be completely overwhelmed. Her name is Angel. And although she looks like Hannah, as a, she's an orange brindle, um, she doesn't have that ambition to just go and have fun. And <laughs> so. Still, though, I think you, if, if you could bring her, that would be such a good selling point because the dog would just draw people in every single time. I know. I know. It would be great. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Evelyn, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. And uh, certainly, folks, if you want to learn more about this wonderful author, you go to CaribbeanTales.com, tales as in a dog's tale, hint, hint, and check out all the books right there. And Evelyn, thank you so much, and I look forward to meeting you in person at the Expo. I am looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain. 
Hero to Writers Everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details, and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to covervillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, part two of our exclusive interviews with the authors, the many, many authors happening happening at this year's Rhode Island Author Expo. This is a free event. It happens every year. There's authors, panels, speakers. The whole thing's free. There's raffles. Santa will be there. I have it on good authority that Old St. Nick will be there. It's going to be a blast, guys. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope to see you all there. And joining me now, longtime friend of the show, you probably know the name, Keith Carrero joins me. Keith, welcome back. As always, it's a great pleasure having you here on the show. Thanks, Max. It's always great to be with you. All right. Now, what's really cool about your work is that you actually are working on a nine-part fantasy series. Uh, you were you recently uh, released uh, the first trilogy. Walk us through what this one's all about. Okay, so it's it's going to be a trilogy of trilogies. I figured that in my in my elder years, in my dotage, I needed something to preoccupy myself with rather than just retiring and then just melting away into the darkness of senility. Wow, you make it sound like so much fun. <laughs> so I, I did, you know, but it's true. I I know I don't know how many people I know that retire and then they don't do anything. They stay home, they veg out, they watch TV, that's it. That's their life. And they kind of go downhill from there. I don't want to do that. The first trilogy is The Penitent. That's right. That's right. So, again... The overall series is called The Immortality Wars. That's right. That's right. Man, it, is, it has been a while since we talked about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So, what's this one all about? Walk us through the story, man. Well... The premise of the immortality wars is, is it's a thought experiment. And uh, I, it started with me thinking one day, <laughs> in, around 2014, as a matter of fact, I, for some reason I said, wouldn't it be interesting if I could transport Benjamin Franklin, John and Abigail Adams, Jefferson, Washington, all the lights of the American Revolution and bring them up to our time and then show them New York City, Beijing, Singapore, Paris, London. Uh, these, these are people that, I mean, basically, they're kind of like the Romans. They're just horses and fire, not and maybe gunpowder, right? Yeah, so so but the but the technology is very primitive. So my my wonder was what would they think they were seeing? Would they think that they were demonized do they think would they think that they would see these are wizards and I, I started getting this false sense of pride or hubris thinking wow aren't I the big gun that I can show these people you know what civilization has done and then you know the old monitor in me knocked me on the head and said uh Keith my friend what would happen if somebody 500 years from now brought you up to the 26th century, and given that technology is it has, you know, evolved, continuing to evolve, what would you see? Would you be 
as mesmerized as the framers of the Constitution in, in 2014. So I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. I like that better. I, I said, I, but what would it be like? What would the earth be like? Uh, and then I figured, well, we wouldn't be on the earth because it's so screwed up. We messed it up too much. So there's this, I figured out that there's this great diaspora, a great migration, the haves and those who have the cachet to do so go out into this part of the solar system. Uh, I mean, in the galaxy, which is the uh, uh, Orion Spur, and they settle in 12 exoplanets. Th th these are actual exoplanets. I just renamed them. So uh, what, what would, okay, now, so I get that. And I said, okay, so now that's the premise uh, of the setting. What would these people be doing? Well, people are greedy. You know, Lord Acton said in the 1600s, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that hasn't changed. Um, so I figured, okay, so it, it probably won't change. I bet, I bet it'd be like a feudal system, like during the Middle Ages, but high technology, high thievery, high dictatorship, high control over uh, human beings, um, and science, science would be the major dominant force besides power that people put their credence in, their belief system. So I started wondering, I wonder what happens to faith. I wonder what happens to spiritual principles from the great traditions and religions of, of the old earth. What happens to those? Do they resurface? Are they buried further? So I, I figured, wouldn't it be interesting if I could do something like a Ben-Hur, but for that time? Wouldn't it be something if I could combine the voices of Stephen King, Dean Koontz, George MacDonald, Lee Child, uh, and uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and put my own spin on it and create something where uh, what I was blown away with in the 50s and 60s as a young boy and, and a young man watching these big sandal and sword movies. So I said, okay, so it's going to be fantasy. It's going to be science fiction. It would be nice to, uh, I guess, stay with the trope of the Middle Ages. Uh, so I started doing all kinds of research on the Middle Ages, and I came up with these characters. And one of the characters, his name is Paul Warren. He's 24 years old, and uh, he's uh, an absolute gifted terror at close quarter combat, sword, quarterstaff, knives, whatever you want to put in his hand, he's going to probably mess you up. Doesn't matter your size, doesn't matter your skill level. This guy is amazing. So that's the male. That's one of the male protagonists. So I had to have a female protagonist that was even better than him. So I came up with, wouldn't it be interesting? What would what would a Joan of Arc be like in this setting? So I settled on a Joan of Arc character, uh, uh, an Evangeline character that uh, Longfellow wrote about called Evangeline and uh, Heidi the old uh, story of Heidi. And I combined those three together in this 
young woman and you see her from a baby until she's about 17 uh, become basically a warrior queen. Uh, and these two fall in love with one another, but they never meet one another physically per se. It's all in visions. But now I'm going to give a spoiler and I'm not worried about the spoiler. So the first, the first, the first trilogy, despite hints given, you think you're in the Middle Ages. The characters think they're in the Middle Ages. If that's, I don't even know if that's a correct statement. But it's sword sorcery and all of that stuff. So what happens is they are in the middle of a scientific experiment taking place in the 26th century. And it's a hyper-reality experience or an experiment, a simulacrum. So if you think The Matrix, if you think Hunger Games, if you think uh, Westworld, but this is a whole world in of itself, a whole planet that they've created as an experiment because when I said that power corrupts, well, I didn't say that, Acton said that, uh, an absolute power corrupts absolutely. What I'm saying is people are greedy. People in power, once they invest in that power, they don't want to give it up. So the science of the day is such that you can live as long as you want, but they're not happy with that. They want to be immortal. They want to be like the gods. Why not? Because science can bring them that. We don't need the scriptures. We don't need the Bhagavad Gita. We don't need the Muhabharata. We don't need the Bible. We don't need the Koran. We don't need any of that stuff. We have science. And science will bring us to be like Apollo, to be like Venus, to be like Zeus. That's what they want but it's eluding them. They can't find the potion for it. Ergo, this experiment, what they're thinking of doing, because the, the, the wise people of the day think that if they throw Old Testament, New Testament, uh, uh, demon-esque times, and throw them against human beings, put them in possession of demons, put them in war-torn situations, totally dysfunctional society. They think that people who can be successful in such scenarios use their DNA differently than you or I. And therefore, it may lead to a genetic algorithm for immortality. That's that's one, that's, (laughs) that's one uh way this particular world and uh it, this goes to the fourth book which is the, the pilgrim part one this is the, uh this is what they're trying to do other planets are doing other things they're creating sidroids they're creating cyborgs and they're downloading co- uh, human consciousness in them thinking that's going to lead to somehow some kind of immortality uh, that's the premise of the story that is a complicated premise that is a yeah, very well, complicated story, sir. I like it, though. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was eating a good steak at the time, and so I thought, you know, it, it ate it in uh, some kind of uh, thought perturbation. Where can I get this steak? Jeez, I, I want to. <laughs> I want this steak, so I so, so you know I can come up with, with my own like massive fantasy landscape here. Speaking of landscapes, um, how much time did you have to spend like world building this whole thing before you began writing it? Massive. Oh yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. You, you, uh, 
the audience can't see it, but I'm in my study. So all that is, it's like a forensics. Yeah. It's all mapped out. Nice. So, and plus I've got files and files of stuff on. Uh, so I had to, I had to figure out, okay, so what did they eat during the middle ages? What did they drink? How did yeah. they prepare it? Where, how do they plant it? How do they harvest it? Sword making, armor making, political uh, um, networks, education. Uh, I based it on the Catholic uh, religion uh, of the Middle Ages because um, Joan of Arc is that was a Catholic thing. Um, so I call I call this a a science fiction fantasy spiritual thrill. It has Christian based themes in it. But I don't hit you over the head in proselytizing. I I want to just tell the story in light of what happens to faith, what happens to science, what happens to civilization in the, in this 500 years from now. Now, did your own viewpoints on any of these topics kind of wind up being in the book at all? Uh, yeah, especially in the fourth one. Oh, ah, okay. How so? Yep. Well, uh, Paul Warren, the guy that's gifted at uh, combat, he pops out of the experiment and he finds that he's in a laboratory where this is all occurring. And he brings with him all of all of the uh, all of the um, I don't even know what the word would be, all of the jazz <laughs> that he was loaded with in this simulacrum. And now he's bringing all that world into the, into the scientific one and they can't figure it out. Now in this scientific world, there are gangs, there are cartels, there are hunters, there are, uh, are uh, robbers, there's gangs, there's all kinds, there's all kinds of things. It's, it's humanity at its worst. Um, and, and there are, there are religious cults that hear of his presence and they are after him along with the scientists and the other worlds. And they want, they want to get him because they want to dice him up. They want to, they want to get into his DNA. They want him dead. Whereas other people want to just, they think he's like a Messiah. So they're after him. So he has to figure, he has to scramble around and find safety somewhere and try it's it happens so fast to him that he can't he can't uh catch up to the react to the reality of what's hitting him the learning curve is too massive so he he uh a family takes him in that uh is uh the co-directors of this laboratory uh husband and wife and they uh protect him they at least they try to all right. Now, as you mentioned earlier, we are now in book four of the series. Uh, is this currently available or are you already still working on it? Uh, all the illustrations are done. Um, uh, all the editing is done. Uh, it's in my publisher's hands. And now <clears throat> he has to figure out how to put this thing together in terms of format because it, it it's, it's the most complicated book. I, I would say this is even more complicated than my dissertation at Harvard. <laughs> This, this, this is this is crazy because it has legends at the, in the back. It has cast right. characters, yeah. key terms, uh, a timeline that starts, I think, 12,000 years ago uh, that I made up timeline. And uh, 
I, I'm, I, I'm really pleased with, with this book. I think it's going to, it's already won an award. Oh, that's it right. A, yeah. It won a page Turner award for a manuscript. Um, and, uh, and, and the first book, the penitent, I'm going to Miami on November 18th to get a uh, reader's favorite uh, bronze medal for the first book. Yeah. So I'm wicked. I, I wasn't going to go. I was blase about it. The old cynical self comes, uh, you know, come on. So every, people say, Keith, what are you crazy? You're going to be with all these high hot shot people in the literary film, c- cinematic business. You're stupid not to go. And I said, I'm just, you know, so I, so I called, I called, what was it last month? I called the hotel. I said, uh, 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 any rooms? I'd like to make a reservation. Well, we have one left. Take it. There you go. It did it. Yeah. If they said, "Oh, we got plenty," I would. I probably would just. <laughs> see, don't see, want it. See, this is a sign. It's a sign that you're supposed to go to this thing. I don't know. I guess so. Hey, I'm, hey, I'm going. Hey, I'm not a bronze war winner. You know, I I would definitely go if if I if someone told me, "Hey, Max, you got this award," I'd be like, absolutely, I'm going. We're doing I know, this. I I'm going. This was, this was, a, they said that it was the uh, most, uh, the most uh, contestants for this particular uh, award. Uh, there were a lot of different categories. The category I got was uh, Christian sci-fi fantasy. Um, there's a gold, silver, bronze, honorable mention, and finalist. So I got the bronze. Hey, there you go. That's something. And, I know. Hey, and now. I, I feel- and now yeah. you get to say multi-award winning author, Keith Carrero. Jeez, I didn't even think of that. Max, yeah, you I get to see. Hire, I should hire you. Goes right on your business cards, goes right on your big banner. Multi-award winning author. How many people can say that? Not a whole uh, lot. I'm, I'm writing it down so because I'll probably forget it. <laughs> Absolutely. You, Heading for Alzheimer's. Ah, come on. You'll bury us all. So, hey, the audience can't see it. You want to see the, uh, the uh, you'll be the first to see the title page. For oh, the, the audience uh, can see this, sir, because we are recording oh, video. So go for it. Oh, okay. Go for it. Cool. Let's do it. There's the title page. Uh, oh, my God. So cool. So cool. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. So, so, so the, uh, this is two people's efforts. The artist who drew the uh, dragon, his name is Howard David Johnson. He's out in uh, Idaho. Uh, And I found him online and it was just what I was looking for. And what you're seeing there is what's known as an Ouroboros. Yes, yes. Which is an ancient alchemical symbol. Uh, It stands for wholeness, infinity, completeness, and... uh, yeah, Ouroboros is also the planet that Paul Warren ends up on. Ah, nice. One of the 12 planets, yeah. Now, how'd you meet this author? I'm really curious about that. Uh, online, I, I did a massive, I kept doing searches. But you asked me about research. I've been researching this since 2014, since ah. actually since actually March of 2014. Nice. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, do you set like deadlines for yourself when it comes to these getting these books out there? Yeah, I, when, once I start writing, I, 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 my goal is to write every day uh, a minimum of five hundred words. That's not bad, actually. I like that. Yeah, 
No, and that that comes from Stephen King, who over 50 years ago told me we were classmates at the University of Maine Oro. He, he was always in the campus newspaper office typing away. And one day I asked him, I said, so, so why are you always at the typewriter? And uh, he, he didn't answer me. He's too busy typing. <laughs> so he, had, he had all these pages that he had already typed. And so we, it was all light brown paper. We used to call it arithmetic paper, mm. eight and a half by 11 sheets. So he, he, uh, he, he tamped them all together and he, and he got up and he hand, handed it to me. And I started reading it. I was totally blown away. You know, I mean, we're, we're basically kids, 19 years old. And uh, I'm reading about this, this car that's, a, that's ha- it's sentient. Oh, it yeah, has, Christine, right? has its own awareness. The, the humor is unbelievable. The cult, popular, pop culture references. Is, it was like Edgar Allan Poe was alive, and, and he was writing in, in the 20th century. So I, I finished it, and uh, I gave, handed it back to him. I mean, he hasn't said anything to me, and uh, he, he came and got the the pages and he was sat back down at, before the typewriter and i said so um you write every day just like you kind of asked me and I, I he said uh well keith i uh i uh, my goal is to write 2000 words a day rain or shine 24 7 365 he said just think of this keith in 10 days how many words do i have in 100 days how many words do i have so you would you would have thunk that that would have penetrated in my head, and I would have started off writing. But no, no, it took me fifty years till two thousand fourteen to finally look. I went back and looked, read one of his blogs, and he said the same thing. I write two thousand words a day, except for four days. So I said, "All right." So when I sit down, this because he he also told me he said. You can't depend on inspiration to write. It has to be a discipline. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how I did it. So the, the first trilogy took me from about May 24th of 2014 through October 9th, 2014. I wrote 184,000 words. Oh, my word. So the, the five, I, I couldn't do 2,000. It was too daunting. I couldn't do a thousand. That was still too, too much. So I said, 500, I can, I can, I can do 500. Mm-hmm. I, that's, that's not much. So I discovered it, it was more than I thought it was, but <laughs> once I got going, once I got going, it was, it was like the dam broke. So, so that was good. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about the upcoming There's the ex- poster. There's the poster. Oh, oh we got, oh, we got poster. Okay. Yeah, that's the poster for uh, that's Paul Warren. Yep, that's the Ouroboros dragon. Yep, and uh, he and the dragon kind of relate to one another, but there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Oh, I think you've got the still you still got the book cover up there. There we go. Oh, the, oh wow. Oh my god. Oh my god. That so is I'm, so I'm, cool, Max. I'm telling you, I'm I'm so psyched about this fourth book because. It's kind of, I feel like my ability has grown, yeah. has matured. I've been able to, because time has gone by, I've been able to assemble a team together that I really like. Because an independent author can't do all of this. Not unless you're, uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci. Or Stephen King. 
Well, or Stephen King, yeah. But even he's got all kinds of help. That's true. That's true. It you really know, staff, yeah, agency, publisher, publishing house, yeah. Exactly. So this this took this took about six months to develop this image. That is, I I want to blow that up and make it into a poster. Yeah, this is going to be twenty four by thirty six, and yeah. I'm going to have it. I'm going to have it at uh, uh, book signings. Yeah. I'm not going to show the cover yet, but the cover has the dragon and uh, Paul is in there with uh, two other characters. Excellent. Well, speaking of signings, of course, we have the upcoming the upcoming Aria Book Expo. But you are an old habit. You've been to this, this thing for years. Uh, what's your strategy for getting those people to arrive towards you and buy some books? Um, I wave magic dust in the air. And, That's what uh, I gotta do. Damn it! Sprinkle it, sprinkle it in the air, and and is it through osmosis? It kind of attracts those who are who are buyers, and not just lookers, looky loos, but but people who, who oh have a hunger for a great tale. That seems very suspicious, but okay, yeah. we're gonna go with it. Well, it, you know, I try to put together a nice table. Uh. Uh, when I first started doing this, it was the the paucity of materials I had on the table was 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 pitiful, um, and uh, there was there were other people. As a matter of fact, that's when I joined Aria. Mm. Uh, Steve Porter was was at this place. It was at a yacht club up in Danvers, and uh, I you know you steal with your eyes. So I took pictures of all these tables, and gradually, after a year and a half, I finally got it together. And you've got a and good I, setup too. Like, like I've seen you at the Royal Island Comic Con, at Aria, of course, other places. You have a you have a dope setup. You get you get the banners, you get the books, yeah. you get everything you need. Yeah, yeah. And then I I was just at the Big E in West Springfield. I was there too. Oh my god! Were you there? Yeah, I was there. Nice. That was, it was the the most. Uh, uh, the best venue I've ever been to. I couldn't sell fast enough. As a matter of fact, I lost sales because I can't, I can only talk to one person at a time. Right. I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't leave one person and, you know, play the field. Sure. Yeah. It's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to like have. Like a politician. I, I'm just, I, I, you know, can't do it. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. Well, Keith, man, as always, great talking to you. Love the series. And folks, if you like what you hear, and I know you are. You know where to be, you know when to be there, and you know who to, who to look for. In the meantime, you go to immortalitywars.com for more information. You'll find the books, you buy the books, you leave a review, because all this helps bring these authors up for the world to see. And Keith, as always, great speaking to you, and I look forward to seeing you in December. Thanks, Max. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. Hey everyone, how's it going? Citywide Blackout is at the Rhode Island Comic Con to continue our series of interviews for the upcoming Rhode Island Author Expo. And talk to me now, this is an old, old uh, uh, friend of the show who's been on uh, a few times now. Author Deborah Snelly joins me. Welcome back, Deborah. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the interview. Of course, of course. Now, we last spoke, I think, two or three years ago. So it's been a while, and you certainly have been very, have been, uh, very busy. I know you have a new book out called uh, Dark Night, A Dark Night of the Soul. And uh, that's, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? That is the original book, and the final one is here, but the original one is the one that seems to be 
the one closest to my heart. I wrote that when I was recovering from surgery, and I could not. I had brain tumor, and I was not allowed to have my child with me for the days. I had to have someone else with me. So I sat there and I thought long and hard about how you would feel about life and death and the situations you come, and that's why it's Dark Night of the Soul. And this is a very deep story because this is all about uh, vampires, as, as the name implies. But it's not your typical vampires. Your uh, your characters have a have a lot of depth. You have uh, Gregor, who is a centuries-old vampire who has been the victim of abuse from his parents. Um, I'd like to know a little more about him and how the abuse kind of like shapes him as a character. His childhood experience was the abuse was from his parents and the his mother ignoring the fact that this was happening left him tremendously scarred. He does not feel there is such a thing as love, and he didn't see any, he didn't experience any, and you can't give what you're not given. So, and he was a crying child, so in, because there wasn't any love in the world, in his world, he assumed that he was the weak one, and he hates the weak one. You, he hates what he sees of himself. And that is why he victimizes and goes after who he believes is weak. But it's also why, in Marcus's case, why he takes someone who's strong. Because he has to prove he wasn't weaker than, there's no one stronger than he was, right? If he succumbed, everyone would succumb, but Marcus doesn't. Marcus is stronger. And that is the epic battle between these two people. Uh, so I want to go back a bit to um, uh, Gregor's parents. Do they know that he, uh, um, uh, he was a vampire? No, actually, that came out a little later. You don't really get into that in, in the books, unfortunately. I know it seems to interest you, and I, I like that. But what you get is how he is, and they didn't know, and my vampires are particularly interesting because, in my opinion, it's not supernatural. This is a natural condition. I did meticulous research that everything they can do can be done by something somewhere in this world. And I made it, put it together to say, this is what happened, this is what will happen, or could happen. And I developed my characters around that. Okay, I want to ask about the research, because like, if vampires were real, basically, it was probably like the search uh, uh, keys there. What did you find? Well, I found the most interesting creature. We know there are vampire bats. We know there are stories about vampires everywhere in the world. Did you know there are such a thing called the Kleptera, which is a vampire moth? No, and I'm terrified now. Yeah, well, they, they'll attack elephants. They live in northern Europe, and they leave little holes in your body because they're pretty small. So you can see this would be assimilated. Now, on the other hand, they also, like so many other creatures, may excrete something. Research ends kind of on them. They're moths. They don't like the sunlight. So it, it continues on. I did a lot of research on that. But by the way, they're really ugly. <laughs> really ugly. I looked at a picture and said, oh, God, if I saw that in the woods, I'd be running. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, it is. But and So you take that out and you see, okay, you can see a myth growing from this. And, of course, seeing as how it's fiction, I extrapolated, what if that animal had the effect on the person it bit? So I did this. Yeah, it's almost like a vampire bug. We know they're real, so... No. You know what vampire bugs no. Are? Vampire bugs are those animals that bite into a host and take over their life. Don't tell me these things. I don't want to know these things. I can't sleep now. <laughs> See what happens when you're retired and you get to do all this research. <laughs> I can't wait to retire. Fantastic. <laughs> but I'm curious as to how much like research had to go into this before you said, "Okay, we're ready to roll." 
Well, I started writing the book from the recovery, and that was years ago. And then when I retired, I just started researching this. Let's look in biology. Let's look at this. Let's look at this. And I just wrote it up. I have notebooks and notebooks at home. And of course, again, it's fiction. I took what I wanted to carry the story along. All right. Um, How does Gregor sort of... How is Gregor, like, I guess, like, shaped by the abuse? How does this, like, change his character? We don't know what he would have been, but we do know, and I, I think I mentioned it before, that with a child, if you don't show them how to love, if you don't show them how to have any empathy, they develop differently. They don't care who they hurt, and that's the way Gregor is. The one he wants to hurt the most is himself for being weak. This is what turned. He should have been strong enough to stop his father. How many times have you heard someone who was abused saying, why couldn't I stop it? So you see this going on with Gregor, and you see him hating women more than men, but he's an equal opportunity abuser, because, but mainly because his mother should have stopped it. That is the one you expect to get love from. If you don't get love from your mother, why would you believe there is such a thing as love? Now, getting into that kind of mindset, did you speak to people who had been... I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but victims of abuse or, or like read up about it? Yes. I um, talked to some people I knew who worked in the facilities. And then, of course, I, an extensive reader when I'm not writing, I read two books a week. So I did that for the research. I mean, I f- you find some interesting things out that way. I put my book in, um, I guess you would say supernatural, but there's really nothing supernatural going on. Because when you read about abuse in the real world, and I hear what a child went through, I can barely handle it. But if you put it into this kind of a situation, it's not real. You can read through what they go through without the horror of knowing someone's experiencing it. Were there any particular scenes or parts of the book that you had a hard time writing because of this topic? Yeah, um, a couple of the murder, well, one of the murder scenes is a mother and when she's begging that he doesn't do this because she loves her children. That was hard. It took a few pages, a few throw them away, a few retypes, but... Yeah, that one hurt. Um, I know we're not talking about the last book, but the very last book, there's a discussion that Marcus is having, and that was the hardest thing I ever wrote because it's the kind of conversation I would have liked to have had with my father. Then let's talk about the books that came, that came, that came after this. Um, how many, uh, how many are, are in the series? There's five in the series. Yeah, it's done now, though. Wow. Well, when you get a character you love, you don't want him to end. But um, I did the prequel because I had some people at an author um, sign and greet ask me, how did I make him the character? So with this is like, how did your mother teach you not to steal? How did your mother teach you not to lie? So it goes back and forth. When something's happening to him, he's remembering what he was taught. That's Marcus. So that's the early years. After that, it was, as you said, the psychological drama. Well, now there's where there was darkness. He's coming out of it, but... If that's what you've known for 33 years, stepping into the light is not the easiest thing and you need help. So that's the next one. Then 33 years hunting, it's his best skill. He has been changed physically by what he's gone through. So he works with the FBI to hunt. Basically, at least it's not Gregory's hunting anymore, but he's hunting. I worked with the FBI to get procedure correct. Really? They are very wonderful. They will work with you if you call. And the agent, Benjamin, anyway, I have his name written down somewhere. He told me, call anytime, but he would much rather I have him do it right than to arrest people willy-nilly like the FBI never would. So, (laughs) 
that's another part of the fun of research. I have met the most fantastic people. Even though it was on the phone, he was still a fantastic yeah. person. Okay. So let's talk about this being a five book series. Was that always the plan to do a whole series or was it more like, okay, we're just doing one and that's it? It was supposed to be one. Marcus was supposed to be it. I, I was going back to work. I got healthy again. And I thought, oh, I put it away. I got a job. Then my husband's job moved. I came to Rhode Island, which is where I'm originally from. And I was starting to teach in the school. I worked with um, special needs children's first and second grade. Then I retired, and oh, let's find the book again. Right, let's yeah. see if I can finish it. <laughs> a friend of mine told me, when you write a character you love, if he's not over, he's not over. So I continued him until, well, he's over now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Are you sure about that? I mean, you're saying it, but you never know. You never know. But I, I mean, unless I were to do something more on Gregor, I think this series is over. Your interest in him has piqued my interest. So you mentioned about how the prequel uh, uh, um, came about through a fan kind of asking about it. That's cool that like a fan's interest just spawned an entirely new story. Absolutely. I mean, in my, the back of my mind, in order to write the character in the original book, I had ideas about how he got it. But to have them want to hear my ideas about it was very exciting for me. Okay. All right. I want to dive a little more, not too much because it's actually scaring me really badly. <laughs> But about the biological possibility of vampires in this world, how does that change Gregor? I mean, like, does he have all like the abilities that we see in like the comics and the movies? No, uh, my my vampires, as I said, they don't they don't drink blood like Calypterians do. They don't disappear. They don't fly. They're natural in an unnatural manner, like a Calyptera, which could not eat regular food. They can drink only blood. But you can't suck blood out of the neck from two little fangs. Doesn't work. No. Wait. 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 Are you telling me? Are you telling me that the movies are not scientifically accurate? <laughs> no, they're not science. They're fun, and I love them, but they're not scientifically accurate. And I also found out that no, if they're dead, you're not sucking blood out. No matter what you do, it pulls in the ankles, and you'd have to chew it. Did I make you happy now? No, none of this is going to be happy in the slightest. I'm sad now. No, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. Um, so, but, but Gregor does have the long, uh, the long lifespan. And again, that's another thing I took from nature. These many animals regenerate. I mean, as I put, Marcus says to uh, the other woman in the book there that it's not so much that they can't be killed. It's just that they heal so quickly. Which is why I think in all the movies and everything else, we use a little bit of the same thing. Is if you want them to kill, you're not putting the stake in his heart. How many movies have you seen when they pull it back out? You have to hold it there. Ah. You can't let them regenerate or pull it out. They're going to grow whatever new organ they need to do. So, And it is physically something that happens in nature all over the place. We're just not fortunate enough to have that ability. Now, I want to talk a little more about Marcus. So he um, is Gregor's son, as you mentioned. Um, what's it like grow, uh, uh, growing up with Gregor as your dad? Well, he was originally with his parents, and he was taken when he was 15, right before his birthday. It's, um, there's an awful lot of hate and an awful, but they still were together a long time. And what he saw is what the book is called, Dark Night of the Soul. What he saw is that you can survive this because, yes, there is love. My parents love me, and I know it. And that's how we can survive. But you do have that. It's hard for him not to believe he's a monster. 
this is what I lived with for all these years. This is all I know. Gregor taught me that it's easy to kill. So that's why when he continues on in Dark Knight of the Soul, he doesn't really come out of his darkness until he sees other people and they see him. They see that inner struggle between being what he was told he was and being what he wants to be. And I think that's a struggle that most of us experience sometime in our life. Gotcha. Um, do, uh, as, uh, as the series goes on, do we see like more of Marcus? Or like, like, like what role does he have in the overall story? Well, I mean, he's not there in all the overall stories, but he's always there. There's a, an anima, as you would call it, like a little piece of him will always be with Marcus. And as I said, the conversation at the end of the last book that I had so much trouble with writing was Marcus and Greg trying to reconcile. And I hope, I pray I did a good job on that one because that paragraph means an awful lot to me. Have you got response from that book? It's not out that long, so I haven't heard too much. The reviews are good, and the one review that's on the book loved it. My sister said, holy shit, I want to read the rest of the book. That's a, good, that's a great review. I sent her that a few chapters, and that's what she said. Well, I didn't think they should have it on the cover yeah. of the book. But. <laughs> but that's what her words were. I like that. All right. So we have the expo coming up, and of course, you've been uh, um, part of this group for a number of years. Yes. What's your like elevator pitch when it comes to talking about your books? Um, pretty much what I was telling you. I start off with what he was 15 and how he grows, and people tend to be, what I've seen is they're really interested, even if it's not supernatural, in the characters of the people. And I mean, I put a lot of my soul into these characters, and I think, I'm hoping, that when you read the book, you'll see a piece of you in every character. One of my characters has a little bit of my brother in there, that sense of humor I grew up with. And I, I tried to pull all that in to make these people real. How does it feel to have this series done? I'm at a loss. I love it. I'm writing. I'm still writing. I have still ideas. But Noah, honestly, I do miss Marcus. I had kind of a love thing going with this character. But I, again, if I don't like the character and I don't feel any love for him, why would anybody else? So what's next for you? What's ne I'm working on the final of my Sister World trilogy. I am writing the ending right now. That's a science fiction. And um, that one I decidedly wrote for young adults because um, sometimes I feel teenagers are not realized at how valuable they are, how innovative, and how, if they're treated right, they can be trusted. Exactly. So that's what those books are about, and I'm ending it. So, And then I have a few ideas in the back of my mind, but I can't say them now because they're really just okay, ideas. Yeah. All right. Um, let's talk a little more about Assisted World, because I think when we spoke last, you were still on the first book. Yes, I was. How has the series gone on since that book ended? Well, it's so far really good. I mean, as we said, with Sister World, it's an alternative universe. I worked with a physicist. I got the physics as close to what can actually happen as possible. The second one moved on from the fact that, okay, they know we're here. How do we stop it? I worked with them, a whole bunch of people to get interesting things going on on communications and the fight for earth i find quite a fun book and again it's a it's a quiet battle we're not i mean if they look like us and they talk like us who would you shoot at which president is real so it has to be undercover and under wraps so and when that one ending we know here's the plug the third one well 
they came here. We're going there. We're going to cook some, kick some alien butt. I like that. We're going to return the favor. Why the more realistic approach in your books? I know it's fiction, but I know when I'm reading a book, if I know something is completely not true, it takes a lot away from the book. I don't mind it being somewhat not true, but I mean, if you were to tell me that a boat went floating across the water and it flew into the sky, and it's not Harry Potter, I would not find it as good. This is science fiction, not fantasy. And I tried to keep it that way. Well, Deborah, great talking to you as always, but where do folks go to learn more about you and check out the books? Well, I'll be at the Author Expo this coming December on the 4th, and I'm online everywhere you can find me, and I have put my author email if you need to reach me. I would try to reach out. Excellent. Deborah, thanks again. Thank you very much.